I called my dad last night to wish him a happy Father's Day after we were done here. Had a nice visit with him. I asked him how much money or what percent of interest they had to pay when they refinanced the house to keep us in church school. My mom could hear the conversation. I don't know if they had it on speakerphone or what. She spoke up and she said, 14%. Had a nice visit with dad, but before I left, I thanked him for being a great dad. Thanked him for sacrificing like that. And this is what he said. He said, I never thought of it as a sacrifice. What don't you do for your kids? Now, this is not the message of the evening, but I have to talk about it for just a minute. You don't know if you can afford Christian education until you try. Every Christian needs to cross their own Jordan. Every Christian needs to slay in the name of Jesus the giants in their lives. And God has put in the collective wealth of His church sustenance for those who will sacrifice. We are not a religious uh, welfare system in the wrong sense of the word. In the right sense of the word, we are a spiritual family. And the Bible actually says that we should give special interest and care to those that are of the faith. So the time to start thinking is now. When the recruiter calls up from the academy, give them a chance to come and talk. And you might know somebody you need to mention to the recruiter, mention to the principal, one of the deans, whoever you know. And maybe it's your local church school. But, remember, it starts with a sense of what you believe God wants. It has to be combined with a seed no bigger than that of a mustard. And that without faith, it's impossible to please God because those who come to Him must believe that He exists and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. How many of you agree? Let's pray. Father, I want to praise Your name that every time it looked like I had to leave school. You stepped in and said, I want him in school. I want to praise Your name, Lord, that at every challenge in my ministry, in my family, every moment when I had to decide if I would turn to You or despair, You were always there. You are the great Yahweh, Yireh, who provides... And I ask, Lord, that You'd strengthen everyone's faith here as we obey. For it is in the path of obedience that You lead us to those spiritual Jordans. And You lead us to those spiritual giants. And You whisper in our ear, saying, Fear not, I am with thee. Be not dismayed, I am Your God. Thank You, Lord, that Your arm is not too short to save. Thank You, Lord, that You're the great Creator and nothing's too difficult for You. And I pray, help us as we press together to love deeply You, each other, 
and all that you put in our path. This is my prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. When Gideon met the angel, when Gideon understood his task, he tore down the idol. For those of you that know the story, I'd just like for you to think for a moment what kind of emotional response that elicited from the city. If you haven't read the story lately, let me remind you that their desire was to take the life of the one who took their idol down. But his father stepped in and said, if this idol doesn't big enough to protect itself, maybe it's not too much of a god. So tonight, I'm going to conquer in the name of the Holy Spirit, not on my own, in the power of the Word, in the preparation of prayer and, and seeking after Jesus to be our all in all. I am going to deal with a topic that requires a large heart, a deep mind, and a honesty of person that many have abandoned on the way because nobody's reminded them or they've just that they need to be honest with themselves and they've kind of tuned out the voice of Jesus and instead they've accepted the collective voice of the of the church or something else but you know every once in a while I hear somebody talk about getting somebody back into church and as if that's the ultimate goal but I want to remind you getting them back into Christ is the ultimate goal coming to church matters let me assure you I can't preach a sermon like I did two nights, two nights ago about cheers for Philippi, the double-knotted church, and not remind you that being in the family, receiving the blessings, sharing the burdens, claiming responsibility for the execution of the mission, these are all things that the church does. So tonight, as we look at Christian standards in the 21st century and whether or not they've changed, I need to make sure you understand that at the beginning, the subject matter we're about to undertake requires a living connection with God to make sense, requires a living connection with God to apply, and it requires a living connection with God to know at what pace and what time and what place. I can't give you a formula for what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to share principles. I'm not going to shy away from the topic because somebody might be upset like they were with Gideon. I'm going to be careful how I present the topic because I don't want to be cavalier and I don't want to wound anyone unnecessarily. Christians are men and women and young people of courtesy and nobility and dignity, but they are also people of the book, of principle. And it's important that we pray for wisdom so that we understand how much to move, when to speak, when to be silent. So I'm going to start by letting you know from the very beginning that legalism and obedience are concepts that can be confused with each other, but rightly understood, they're as far apart as the East is from the West. 
Joseph was not a legalist when he shook himself out of his coat and left it there in the wife of Potiphar's hands. Daniel was not a legalist when he communicated that he couldn't eat the king's food and the king's wine. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not legalists when they refused to bow down to the idol on the plain of Dura. Legalism Eve, because you could be very worldly in the church and be running your own show and defining your own definitions and tuning the voice of God out. Or you could be very conservative, if we want to use that word, and be running your own show and tuning out the voice of God. Because legalism deals with issues of motivation. And motivation is something that God alone, along with you if you're honest, can discern if the Spirit can speak. Our church is suffering because it appears that some topics are too delicate to discuss. And I'm not suggesting tonight that I'm going to touch on any or all of them. But I will say this, that if love is a high and holy principle, then you understand that sometimes relationships are strained and wounds are given, but it's inside the context of security that one does have my best interests in mind. But if love is mere sentiment, then the chief sin is to make somebody feel bad. And our whole society, if you hadn't noticed, has trended very heavily over the idea of making sure that we always feel good. Holy principle will lead us to treat people the right way. Unholy sentimentality will make sure that people feel good all the time when sometimes they should not. I can remember one of the first standards that was enacted in my life. It probably had been infused in in a variety of ways, but I wouldn't want you to think that my mother, who didn't go to church and had embraced the habit of smoking and a few other bad habits in her early adulthood years, I wouldn't want you to think that she was a woman without standards. Very much of who I was before I ever walked through the door of a church school was created by her kind, patient, and persistent touch. I knew how to respect my elders. I knew how to work hard. I understood all kinds of things about life that common society and culture embraced in the 1970s when I was a boy. But I do remember one day after she picked us up from church school and my sisters were in the car and a few friends because we shared rides. And I don't know what got into me, especially now that I was going to the church school and I don't know if I was baptized yet or not, but there I was sitting in the back seat and we were barely a half a mile away from the church and I started singing and uh, the only problem was my singing was a mockery of my grandmother who was past her singing prime. This is the grandmother that prayed me into this church. 
And I want to tell you, my mother, even though she had one hand on the wheel, spun her head around and her finger around, and I'm sure the car was about to stop, and no child wants the car to stop when it should be going. And she made it clear in no uncertain terms, really, two things. Number one, that my grandmother, her mother, wasn't in uncertain terms to be honored and respected. And the second thing she communicated to me is that you don't sing religious songs like that. Take your Bibles tonight, if you would, and turn to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning with verse 1. It says in the New American Standard, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men, including women and children, will be lovers of self. And if we stopped right there, we'd know the prophecy of 2,000 years ago is coming and becoming more true day by day. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, Revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such people as these. Those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. And the last line of the segment we're going to look at tonight says, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, you know, Jesus told Nicodemus why that was. He said that it is impossible for one who's not born again to truly see the things of the kingdom of God. So I'm not going to be bashful tonight to say that if at some form your life is in rebellion, it's very possible tonight that the Holy Spirit, not me, the preacher, that the Holy Spirit might pluck a chord that resonates with a sour note. It's not my intention. I want to respect all people. But because I've been a pastor for almost 30 years, I realize that some of these wonderful saints can turn into some of the nastiest sinners when you touch things they don't want you to touch. And I wish I didn't have that to say, but I can remember being cussed out in the parking lot of Indiana Academy one time. And I've been in some other situations before where the cuss words were never said, but the animosity in the heart and the verbiage flowing from the lips maybe you ought to go on ahead and cross that line. Turn in your Bibles over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at verse 12. I don't want to have a negative message tonight, and I don't believe I need to. So let's start out with an admonition from Peter the preacher. He says in 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent 
among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of your, interv- your visitation. Now, I'd like to give you the advice I give all the people that work very closely with me. Carry yourself in such a way that even if the things you say are not well received or they don't agree, that it's very difficult for them after you leave to not listen to you. Now for that to happen, your heart must be full of love. You cannot be a negative person. You cannot have a condemning spirit. You have to have a sense of assurance that your righteousness is a gift by faith so that what your subject matter might be, especially if one is erring from the path of life, is not about condemnation. It is about finding the path of life. It's important that we are positive, sweet, cheerful, gracious, and socially aware people. If we are not like this, we have no right engaging in anything that I'm talking about tonight. And when I said the other evening talking about Philippi, the double-knotted church, I want to assure you the more you know how to love, the better you'll be at giving the wounds of a friend. And if you don't know how to love, Please don't give out any wounds because they won't be from a friend and they won't be well received. Instead of like a highly skilled surgeon only excising what needs to be excised with the anesthesia that precedes the surgery, you'll be bludgeoning and butchering. And what is supposed to be a blessing will backfire and be a curse. On June 1, At 4.15 in the afternoon, I was listening to National Public Radio, and there was an interview with a lady by the name of Anna Kasparian and David Brooks, who was of the New York Times. It was all things considered. It was a Friday afternoon. I was getting home, and I was interested in the subject matter. Audie Cornish, who was the announcer said, finally, at the crossroads of politics and culture, comedians Roseanne Barr and Samantha Bee. Then she went into explaining what had happened that week. They had both been vulgar and coarse and inappropriate in things they had said about people. One had said something inappropriate about somebody that had worked for Michelle Obama, and one had said something inappropriate about the president's daughter. Audie Cornish comes back on and she says, now the president hasn't defended Barr, but he says B should be fired. And then she looks at David Brooks from the New York Times, I'm sure, and she says, David? And he pipes up and he says, yeah, I'm not sure about that, the firing part. I hate the idea of being fired over one offense. But I do think what's happening is sort of a good thing. I think the big story of what's happening is that we are re-norming. Now, this is secular commentary. But maybe tonight, the Christian church should step back and consider that re-norming might be okay for us too. 
Where where are we at because of social media? Because of Donald Trump? A lot of corrosion has happened in the way we talk. This is not a political speech, so don't get hung up on their thoughts. I'm just reading them. There's a lot of corrosion that's happened in the way we talk to each other. And one of the good things about being conservative, listen, all my brothers and sisters, is you tend to think that manners are more important than law. He goes on to say there's a great Edmund Burke saying that manners are what purify or degrade. Now this statement from Edward Burke is not out of the Bible, but it probably has been a commonly held sense of American character development through the years that what's in the person is more important than the outward controls on the person. We would call it character. We would call it internal modulation instead of external pressure. He went on to say, manners touch us every single day and really determine the shape of a society. And our manners have taken a bit of a hit because of Trump and social media. And now we're trying to set some new laws. And when you say words like Samantha be used, and when we say something like Roseanne said, which is far worse, listen carefully, friends, that didn't just emerge out of nowhere. You have to walk through a lot of doors until you get to that spot. You have to have a general corrosion of manners to get there as a society. And now, we're trying to draw that back. We're trying to draw some new lines. This you cannot say. You can't even get close to saying this. So I think in general, it's an act of social healing. What we see in episodes like this. And the announcer says, okay, Anna, an act of social healing? I need your response to this because it feels like roadkill. Feels like pop culture roadkill is what happened this week. And the last line is by Anna Kasparian and she says, the discourse in this country is outrageous. Now it's pretty bad when people who make no religious profession are decrying the degeneration of the culture in which we're living. The problem is the liberty of self-expression wars hard against the restraint and nobility of self-control. Our culture is stuck in a hard spot and I'm not sure anybody knows how for us to get out but I do believe Jesus can show us the way and I believe the light of the Bible can help us. In James 3.13 and 14 it says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show this by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. So I just want to make sure as we're pressing in here that there wouldn't be any Adventist atheists in our midst who are just cultural and they love the fellowship of all these wonderful people, but when the Spirit speaks, if it says the wrong thing, anger is the outcome, not submission to the renorming of the Spirit. In Titus chapter 2, let's turn there if you would. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. I don't want to do most of the talking. I want the Bible 
to speak for itself, but go to the book of Titus chapter 2. It's there that we read about that blessed hope. Titus chapter 2. I want you to know that most of the Pauline epistles are written to renorm the behavior of the churches. Most of what is written by the pastor Paul is about behavior modification. And yet, we seem to be very comfortable with ignoring that component and thinking that whenever behavior is discussed with any specifics in the modern age, that it's legalism. Titus chapter 2, starting with verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. We have the contrast of lawless deeds and the the beautiful holding up of righteous deeds and we are to encourage each other and if we were to reread Hebrews chapter 10, we're to stir each other up to these good things. There are dynamics that shape the character and the culture of who we are that Jesus wants the world to notice. Now, I want to give you an important principle that won't surprise anybody, but I need it to be emblazoned on your mind. And it's very simple. Three words. Doing is becoming. Could we say this together? One, two, three. Doing is becoming. Now, we know it's true. Some of you learned the computer language of BASIC back in the 80s. And you know, you could sit through all the lectures of the professor, but until you sat down in front of a computer and you tried to write some code, you didn't get it. And when you finally got some of those syntax errors, you know, a hundred times over, and you were ready to pull your hair out or smash the computer, eventually the breakthrough would come and you would never forget that component of programming again. Before Michael Jordan was a superstar on the court, he was doing to become off the court. Before you offered a fantastic three, four, five course meal to somebody that you felt was worthy of that kind of honor, you practiced a whole lot with a few bloopers here and there. What it's important for us to understand is, as Pastor Mark Howard so powerfully put it on Sunday morning, is that if you're not careful, you'll come under the dominion, I'm putting it in my own words, you'll come under the dominion of your own wrong desires and the chains that you forged will be the hardest ones to break out of because doing is becoming. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and don't sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Take your Bibles and go back to the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. 
find the books of Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel kind of in the middle and go past Ezekiel to Daniel and then to the first of the minor prophets, the book of Hosea. In the Old Testament, past Ezekiel and Daniel, and you'll be in the book of Hosea. And I want to go to Hosea chapter 5. And I'm going to look at this in a few different translations. So we'll start with the New King James. Hosea chapter 5, verse 4. It says in the New King James, their deeds do not, they do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God. So they're not turning to God. They're not turning their actions to God. For the spirit of harlotry is in their midst and they do not know the Lord. Now I'm going to read it out of the New International Version. It says, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. But I do like the version of the Bible I'm preaching out of. And that's the one we'll end on here. The New American Standard says, their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry is within them and they do not know the Lord. It says there in chapter 4, verse 17, Ephraim is joined to her idols. Let him alone. Now let's go to the New Testament and see if it corroborates the old prophet's statements. Romans chapter 6. I want to go to Romans because the idea of obedience is very much in the heart of Paul. It's a grace-empowered obedience. It's not a grace-earning obedience. And there's a huge difference. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. It says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. There's that dominion. It's a dominion of the habits we create for ourselves. Satan is a very slick dealer. And he knows if he can get us to go down the wrong path doing lawless, unrighteous deeds, eventually... He can just step away and we will direct ourselves to doing lawless, unrighteous deeds. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Can you say amen? You're not under the law, but you're under grace. That's not a grace for disobedience. You could never get that out of that context. That's a grace for obedience because our sanctification is a relationship with Jesus where as we walk with Him and do as He's asked in His power, we are changed into His likeness. I remember the first time I kept the Sabbath. I had studied about it. Not by myself. That means somebody else explained to me that on these holy hours, I'm not buying and selling. That before these holy hours come, I'm preparing. And that once the holy hours are upon me, I'm not allowing the world to have the kind of access to me that it might be hard to avoid otherwise. Well, in my house, that was a little hard to do because I lived in the basement with two-by-four walls with paneling on them 
and one of those cheap accordion doors for coming in and out. And so that meant the family room that was right next to me, when the TV got turned up, I could hear it all. It was hard to escape. And I loved watching TV. I watched tons of TV before I came to know Jesus and too much after I did. But as I grew in Christ, I understood some things. But I'll tell you what, that first Friday night, when that show came on that I watched every Friday night, I stood there at my door and I had to make a decision. The lust of the flesh was warring against the knowledge of the truth. And as I stood there and prayed, Jesus gave me the victory and I didn't go out and watch it. The old amen is right. And I want to tell you, the next Friday night, it wasn't half as hard. And if somebody were to tempt me now with the same kind of thing, I'd say, are you kidding me? You could never tempt me with that anymore. God has set me free. I have enjoyed the wonderful sanctuary of time that comes with the Sabbath as I can relax with Jesus. Now, in my line of work, I don't relax a whole lot on Sabbath. But I want to tell you, I like to show up at my church before anybody else. I like to get there an hour before the service starts. Maybe an hour and a half. We have a service that starts at 8.30 at Village. I love to wake up early and to be there before anybody else and just have a little peace and quiet before everybody comes. I love my church. I love Jesus. I love the people. I want to serve them. I don't chafe at my service to them. But I'll tell you what. I do love a little quiet as a pastor too, and sometimes I'm getting it there early in the morning. But those Sabbath hours are sacred for my spiritual rest and when possible, my physical rest. It's a standard. And that standard has protected me. And when I break a standard, because as a boy, I had that victory, but I'm going to tell you, there were days, Sabbath afternoons, when after I was a baptized Seventh-day Adventist member, I went out and I played basketball on Sabbath. Now for me, according to what I understood from the Bible, that was a violation of what holy time should be used for. And you know, I felt guilty. And it's already been brought up here, I think maybe even this morning in the early morning meetings. Come to those early morning meetings. They're a blessing. But you know, guilt is spiritual pain that precedes spiritual injury. And just like a person who still has the nerves in their fingers, as opposed to a person who has leprosy, you know, the reason their, their fingers fall off partially is that they lose their feeling. Hansen's disease is a deadly thing because you lose your sensitivity to what hurts. And you wound yourself and the body can't keep healing itself because you keep wounding it faster than it could heal. When I have standards, I have protections. When I violate those standards, I experience spiritual pain. That spiritual pain is called guilt. I can either go, as was said in the early morning meeting this morning, and I'm re-echoing tonight, I can either go to Jesus and be liberated from my guilt, my pain, or I can learn to callous my heart and keep doing what I want. And maybe I start sounding like Paul's admonition to Timothy, if I do it long enough, I can have a form of godliness without the power. But I want to tell you, Pastoring is the worst job in the world to be an actor because if you're an actor in this job, you're ahead of the pack on committing the unpardonable sin. 
Be careful of your thoughts because they become words. Be careful of your words because they become actions. Be careful of your actions because they become habits. And be careful of your habits because they become character. And be careful of your character because it becomes what? Destiny. Do most of you still believe this? I want to assure you tonight that standards are what protect values. I love my wife very deeply. Because of that, I have some standards. I don't drive other women to business appointments. I don't have lunch appointments with other women by myself. And you could develop a lot of other things. They're just standards to protect my values. Now, I have more than I can say tonight. So let's grab a few illustrations and see if we can figure out what to do. This is a real life one. Came to me recently. There's a man who's attending your church. I want you to think about what you're going to do. There's a man who's attending your church. He's not a member of your faith. And someone in the church dies that he had started to bond with. The man wants to do something to help. He knows there's going to be a funeral dinner afterwards. And he's already heard about pigs and shellfish and snakes and rats and mice. Oh, that's not a temptation to us. But he doesn't realize that the corporate meals that are held at your church are vegetarian. So he goes home and he makes a dish out of turkey because he knows that's clean. And he brings it to be served. Do you A, tell him that the food can't be served because we only serve vegetarian? And please, nobody answer this out loud. Or do you put a little sign on it that says, this has turkey in it? Don't answer it out loud. Now, before you come to your final conclusion, I want you to remember they brought a woman caught in adultery and laid her at the feet of Jesus. They had every legal legitimacy to snuff her out. Except Rome was in the way. Praise the Lord for the secular pagans. Jesus did not excuse what she was doing. He did understand they had done worse by setting her up. You have an 8th grader who gets pregnant. Everybody knows, especially she has no dad in the picture and her mom doesn't hardly ever attend church, but grandma and grandpa want her there badly. 
Grandma and Grandpa understand she won't be able to keep coming. But after months of being away, and after support from them that it's wrong, they do bring a request to the school board, and the request is, would it be possible that she could march on the night of the 8th grade graduation? I want you to think about them. These are two very real situations. I'm going to tell you how they both turned out. The man who brought the turkey to the funeral dinner was refused the privilege of giving his offering of compassion and he never came back to the church again. Now you need to know, as I tell that story, that when I was about 15 years old, I convinced my whole family to become vegetarians. Even my dad, to his credit, ate a lot of vegetarian meals. And it wouldn't have had to become precedent where we couldn't tell the other meat lovers that they, we weren't starting a new trend at the church. It probably would have been a whole lot better if they just would have stuck a little sign out there knowing that nurturing that soul was a whole lot more important in this case than degrees of the health message. And as for the eighth grader, the school board really felt that after months of being separated from her friends, the high price of poor decisions had been understood and that a redemptive memory could be left in the mind of the young woman if she was allowed to walk down the aisle and get a diploma. The dangerous thing about a discussion of standards is that there are people who think that meeting the standard is the main thing. When Jesus said in Matthew 5.48 that we should be perfect as His Father in heaven was perfect, there is no doubt that the context is that we ought to do a better job of loving than the pagans do because they do love their own. And while this world is using the word love to make excuses for lawless behavior, the church ought to be the best at doing what Jesus did, which is recognizing in the now what the weightier matter is that we're dealing with here. And I do want to assure you that the weightier matter, the great stewardship of the church, is the stewardship of people. And there are times when a certain standard may not be met because attempting to meet it in the moment will be breaking the bonds. And while no one person may or should be making those decisions, compassionate, wise-minded, principled 
godly men and women ought to be praying their way through these situations. And sometimes you just got to live, bad English, sorry, sometimes you just have to live with some who thought it was wise and some who didn't. I have some standards, personal and pastoral. Some of them aren't even moral. They're just good. Like if I'm talking to you, I try to give you my undivided attention and not greet six people that walked by while we were talking. I may because they're trying to get my attention do something like this. But if I'm standing with you, one of my standards comes directly out of the Sermon on the Mount that I'd like to give you what I'd like from you when I'm talking with you, and that's my undivided attention. But I have more controversial standards. The sad fact of the matter is, is that when I was taught them as a teenager, they were not really controversial. They're only controversial now. So could we pick a few of the really hard ones out and talk about them? Maybe we could take the two hardest. They shouldn't be the two hardest. Let's talk about music for a minute. Now I want to tell you that I have a ninth degree, ninth semester emphasis in youth ministry. I worked for years at summer camps. My wife is a teacher. I pastored for almost 20 years at a church the equivalent of Cedar Lake right next to an academy. On top of that, I'm raising and have raised four millennials. I don't really consider my opinion about young people to be substandard to somebody else's. And there is operative in our faith communities tonight the idea that you need very special programming to reach these people. The only problem is, is that often the programming is contradictory to what their parents taught them or what the Holy Spirit is saying to them. And I'd like to suggest to you tonight, it's not special programming they need so much as they need to encounter very special people. People that will reach out and they are the largest, most loving people in the world. But they're not bending what they understand about the purity of worship in an effort to swell the crowd. Now having said that, I surely hope the music in our churches is alive. And by that, I don't mean artificially like the world tries to do it. You can manipulate it. You can engineer it. There are companies that do that. But boy, it's sweet when somebody who loves Jesus is singing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." I can remember being 18 years old and trying to work my way through college, so I was washing the dishes at the Southern Illinois camp meeting. And I can remember sitting in seminars there and just outside of Carbondale, and I was being taught that some of the music I was listening to was not edifying my spiritual journey and wasn't glorifying God, and it was corrupting my appetites, which would then war against Jesus instead of submit to Jesus and be remade into a heavenly appetite, a heavenly a preparation for heavenly citizenship. I did not acquire my value system when I was old. 
My value system was acquired when I was young, which is why we need to teach godliness and righteousness in Christian love and submission and courtesy to our children while they're young. I listened to WLS, which wasn't always a talk radio show. It was an AM channel that would go all the way down to Peoria, Illinois, and I fell in love with rock and roll music. I know what the world's music sounds like, and I've got to be really careful because I'm not out to divide a church or create a problem over music, but wisely and patiently, I want to move my people, God's people, to a place where the minister of music, like we had up here before I got up here tonight, is a dedicated, deep, spiritual guardian of the flock and what they do in emotion and word is preparing them for what they'll hear when I stand up here and break the bread of life with them. By the way, if I was not a preacher, I'd be a conductor. I love listening to and leading music. I'm going to take one more sensitive now. I only have 10 minutes and 44 seconds left. I don't have nearly enough time. But I'm going to do this. I'll tell you folks, our scripture reading tonight, every answer to the question was no. Does light and darkness have any agreement? No. Does, does Belial and Concord have any agreement? No. Every one of those things... We don't think enough in the New Testament era about Paul's admonition to this very troubled church when he says, come out from among the unclean things and don't touch them. It's hard today to go buy groceries and check out without the uncleanness of the world accosting your senses, especially if you're a man. So let's talk about adornment. I won't go into the stories. Yes, actually I will. I was a newbie, so green behind my ears, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was learning fast. One of my elders said, I've got somebody ready for baptism. I want you to come over and clear them. No problem with that. Praise the Lord for godly elders. The only problem was this elder must not have done all the Bible studies. And this young man on his way to becoming an ordained minister should have known you never wait till the Thursday night before the Sabbath baptism to do the clearing study. It ought to be way in advance. So I show up and I'm thinking to myself, did this elder not talk about modesty? And I'm not talking about tight, low, short, high. I'm talking about jewelry. Now, if you're here tonight wearing jewelry, I'm not here to condemn you. I just need to let you know that the Seventh-day Adventist Church on the basis of Scripture believes what Paul said, and that is that the real beauty should be inward and there should be an extreme limitation on the extra adornments on the outward. And it's not just jewelry. It can be expensive clothes. He addresses that. And I'm not here to get dividing lines with you over your husband's Corvette in the garage that's 
not modest, that's not my topic tonight, but principle might take you there after the sermon. So finally, she brought it up. I didn't even have to. And I explained to her that I represent the church and this is what the church believes and I don't really feel like I can baptize you until you understand what we believe about this practical issue. Now, those very words heard by certain ministers will sound like blasphemy, except for one thing, I'm standing on the shoulders of hundreds and thousands of godly men that have come before me and they brought the cross into the practicality of life in the very same way for decades, yea, more than a millennium before me. And if you're not lifting Jesus up in your lifestyle, I'd like to know how close you are to the Old Testament statement that says they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. She had a stress attack. She told me I was denying her her salvation. And she went to the hospital in an ambulance. Imagine how I felt. So the elder thought we ought to try this again the next night. Like I said, I didn't know much. I went back the next night, and with as much courtesy and tact as I could, I explained that it's not in my purview to change what we believe. And beyond that, as a pastor, I really believe when you run into this kind of headache and heartache over practical Christianity, there's probably some other roots on this thing, and we ought to just go a little slower and make sure we're all okay. And by the way, the spirit of prophecy supports this posture. If you read the book Pastoral Ministry, which is a comp compilation of advice to pastors, just go to the first chapter on baptism and she'll say we need to give a more thorough work to preparation for baptism, not less thorough. And I'm telling you, I pastored a church for 20 years, which meant the stamp of discipleship that I put on those people was the stamp I had to live with. And I have no problem lifting up Jesus on a cross who was adorned with the jewels of the universe and came down here in poverty and asked women if they would follow in a similar manner. And men, she had another stress attack, went back to the hospital, and you know what happens at the pastor's house? This was the daughter-in-law of a prominent member. You know what happens in a little church at the pastor's house when you got upset like this? The phone starts ringing. And I want to assure you that phone rang and I got an earful from a few people, but you know what? I learned very early on, I had to defend my faith to my mother. <laughs> I had to stand up to my mother. If you can stand up to your mother, you can stand up to a lot of other women and I have had to. Long story short, hidden behind this sore point, was a very unholy life. And six months later, she left her husband. And before I left that district, the people who chewed me out called me up and apologized to me. And they understood there's practicality in the practical religion and the practical cross-bearing of Seventh-day Adventist men and women. Marilyn was the second woman. Marilyn came to church after we studied the topic of jewelry, and I'm convinced Marilyn put every bit of jewelry she had on every Sabbath to see if somebody would be rude to her about it. It was a little bitty church. They all knew each other. 
It was my little Philippi, Monticello. This may sound like heresy to you, but I think it was the right thing that they did since they all knew and since everybody understood this was a discipleship journey, they even invited Marilyn to have some upfront positions at times. And I can remember when I sat down for the clearing visit with Marilyn, she said, Pastor, I agree with everything your church teaches except jewelry. And I thought, oh boy, here we go again. And I said, well, Marilyn, let's study it. And we did. And I respected her and she respected me and we didn't have any stress and trauma over it. You know, over the next several months, the Holy Spirit, Marilyn was a true Christian. It slowly came off and when she finally heard I was leaving the district, she came up to me and she said, Pastor, would you baptize me? And I said, Marilyn, are we okay? Do you, do you understand this? And she said, yes, Pastor. And she's still serving in that church today. And then there was PJ. PJ was a realtor, a successful woman, and she had a non-Adventist spouse, as did Marilyn. And I never even had a clearing visit with PJ, but I remember her meeting me in the wall, in the hall of the Cicero Church, and she said to me, Pastor, I've been thinking about this. And I've even talked with Larry about it. And she said, Pastor, you know why I wear this stuff? Because I like how it makes me look. I could have fallen over. This was a very humble, honest, professional woman. The first woman who ever said that to me. And I was so glad she did because at the root of some of these things are some very simple and denied sentiments. And then there was Edwina. She was a young woman my age, so she was in her early 30s. And she had been teaching Sabbath school in that little Monticello church for years, and every week she came decked out. It wasn't the right time to say anything just yet, but you know, the Sabbath school only had two people in it. Two little girls whose mother did not wear any jewelry. And she was one of the sweetest women you would ever and could ever meet. And she understood there was a right time and a right way. And I want to tell you, we held a prophecy seminar. And in the midst of that prophecy seminar, which brought in souls, but also revived the church, I can remember the night Edwina came to me. She, had, she said, Pastor, I don't know how I could be doing this. I said, doing what? She said, in effect, modeling this form of dress to these two little girls, Sabbath by Sabbath. And she took it all off. My value system comes out of the Sermon on the Mount, do unto others as you'd have done unto you. My value system comes out of 1 Corinthians 13. That love doesn't vaunt itself. It's patient. It's kind. My value system comes from the wisdom of applied love and principle. My value system comes from holy writ. My value system comes from the spirit of prophecy. My value system teaches me to understand my chief stewardship is people, not rules. But my valueship, my stewardship of people and my values and my standards 
understand that my standards protect values. My standards protect relationships with the ones I love and the ones who love Jesus, with my walk with Jesus. And when there's an idol in somebody's life, whether you can see the wound or not, and I haven't talked about myriad scores of other entertainment, People are sitting around with their phones. Some people's idol is Facebook. I don't even want to begin to make a list because I'll leave something off, but the Holy Spirit will talk to you if you want to hear. It's beetle nut in Papua New Guinea. It might be coffee in Michigan. It might be liquor. I don't know what it is. It might be pornography or immorality. But I want to assure you something. No matter where you are, Jesus loves you, but He loves you too much to leave you where you're at. He's going to take you to higher ground because the deeds of righteousness that He empowers you to do and the laws and rules that protect your relationship will only set your spirit free. And I want to tell you something. I do want to see Jesus. And I don't want to be encumbered while I have this awful and awesome responsibility of letting people know that the hour of judgment is upon us. It's a vindicating judgment. God doesn't want to condemn anybody, but it's coming to an end. And when it comes to an end, and I, I could have, we could have, we could have a whole series on this. But I'm hoping that you listen to me like Bereans. I'm hoping you don't go out of here and twist something I said. I'm hoping that if the Spirit plucked a cord in your life, that you understand you need to take that up with the Spirit. Because I don't believe for a second that rules are more important than people, but I don't believe they're opposites. I've raised four children with a set of standards. They love and respect me as their dad. They're not living by all of them, but I'm managing my little household. Hopefully in the same wise way, I'm managing a larger household of faith. And there's a right time and a right place. And there's a wrong time and a wrong place, but I do know this. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, any woman, any child, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. I echo the sentiment on behalf of the Master. If he's speaking, let him speak. If you're okay, let it be okay. Just don't lie to yourself. Be humble, be honest, and be free. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.